When I was a kid in elementary school, I wasn't afraid of a lot, but I was afraid of the librarian. And <laughs> I'm not sure why. She looked a little bit like olive oil from Popeye cartoons. Um, and that's not why she was scary, but uh, I was terrified of her. She had the old school, you know, 80s giant glasses. All we did really in her class was check out books and watch film strips. You remember film strips? They were fantastic. One day, my family and I were walking through the mall when people still went to the mall uh, for fun. And we were walking through the mall, and we came around the corner past the elevator, and there was Mrs. Burwell, the librarian. And it scared me to death. Because as a little kid, I had no idea that teachers didn't live in the school where I went to be taught, right? And there she was eating an ice cream cone, and it just perplexed me that this terrifying, mean librarian could be enjoying ice cream in the mall. And was she really a normal person? And did she really have a normal... And she had a daughter with her. I mean, she actually was a mom and had kids. And, she, and I had this, this aha moment where my parents explained to me, yes, Adam, your teachers are human beings. They don't reside at the school, and they have families, and they're regular folks. And I think sometimes for us, we like to look at the people who make up the Christmas story of the Bible uh, as not regular folks, as people who are just part of the story. And God sort of miraculously wove the story of which He certainly did. But in our next few weeks together, I want to open some of our eyes to the fact that these were people just like you and me. And that God had a special call on their life and their obedience meant everything, and that people like you and I could very well have played the same part as these people did. So this morning we're looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is the most detailed recording uh, of the story of Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, this is what Luke writes. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and he said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I am blown away by these, these first couple of verses. The first thing that blows me away is that an angel shows up to talk to Mary, and it, it is not the angel that freaks her out. It is his words that terrify her. Now, I'm suspecting that if you and I encountered an angel later today, or if you by yourself encountered an angel later today, the simple fact that the angel appeared to you would terrify you. So we don't know. Perhaps this was commonplace in that day, or perhaps, probably more likely, the angel came to her like a man. The author to Hebrews says that oftentimes when we are hospitable, we entertain angels unaware. But Mary, for certain, is bothered by this angel's message to her. I want to dig into this just for a few minutes here and figure out what on earth is bothering her about this message. Why is Mary so terrified or so taken back by this greeting? It says she's trying 
to figure out what sort of greeting this might be. I love Mary because Mary is the classic processor and thinker, isn't she? Every time we see her, she's taking in the surroundings and trying to process it and make sense of it. Later, when the shepherds come to worship baby Jesus, it says Mary began to treasure these things up in her heart. So Mary receives this greeting, and she's wondering what sort of greeting this might be. Well, what was the greeting? The greeting was, let me read it to you again. The greeting was, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. I'm wondering what would be so terrifying about this. Let me suggest to you three possible things. Uh, The first is is that Gabriel delivers the message. Now, we don't know uh, if she knows that this was Gabriel or not, right? We, We don't know. We're not clued into this reality. We're not even necessarily clued into the reality if she knows it was an angel, Uh, But we do know that Luke is careful to tell us that it was Gabriel, and that oftentimes when an angel shows up, uh, they're just generic about it. The angel Gabriel is radically important because he only shows up one other place in Scripture. He shows up a little bit earlier in the chapter, in Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah in the temple, but he only shows up one other place in all of Scripture. And that's in Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9... There's very similar language to what's happening here in Luke chapter 1. It says the angel Gabriel came near to Daniel, just like it says he came in to see Mary. And you may or may not know that Daniel chapter 9 is a radically important Old Testament prophecy. right? So Daniel has been praying uh, boldly to God for liberation from Babylonian exile. The people have been in exile for close to 70 years, and Daniel remembers that God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years, but he also knows that God said that would happen so long as the people were repenting of their sin. Daniel looks around him and he sees a people who are not repenting of their sin. So his prayer is extra bold. Daniel's trying to repent for the entire people so that God would come through in his faithfulness to this 70-year promise. And God, because of of Daniel's faithfulness here, sends the angel Gabriel to respond to his prayer. And the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, and this is basic, let me summarize, this is a super complicated passage of Scripture, we are not going to get into the depths of it, Uh, read eschatology books to figure that out, or we could have a a talk some other time. Let me just give you the forest view of what's happening here. Basically, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, my answer, God's answer to your prayer is yes and not yet. Yes and not yet. So in other words, yes, I'm going to let the people go back. I'm going to honor the 70-year pledge. The people are going to return, but they're not going to be free. You're not going to be liberated. And so you have, over this whole stretch, other peoples who are occupying uh, the nation of Israel and who are, who are um, ruling over them. But this is what Gabriel says to Daniel. You won't have freedom until the time comes when God sends the Messiah and the Messiah will bring an end to sin and therefore you can have the freedom that you long for and once again be God's people. So what is Gabriel talking about ultimately? The arrival of Jesus right onto the scene. So now, take all this into context. Mary has no idea what's happening. All she hears is this greeting. Say she understands who Gabriel is. 
And she's knowing the only time Gabriel has ever showed up is to Daniel and to tell him that a Messiah is ultimately coming. And Mary's freaked out. Wait a minute. How am I involved in this whole story? And then listen to the specifics of the message. He says, you are a highly favored one, Mary. You're favored. And this must have been just dumbfounding to Mary because everything about her life spoke to not being a privileged person. She would have never looked at her life and said, I am highly favored. Let me give you a background to the life of Mary. Maybe some of this is familiar to you. Maybe some of this might be new to you. Mary's name is obviously Mary, but it's really Miriam. She's named after Moses' sister, right? And Miriam obviously is shortened into Mary through language translations. But this name was the most common name for women in all of Israel. So there were thousands of people with the same exact name. And Mary was born in Nazareth, a town of 1,600 people, a no-name village of sorts. You remember later, uh, Jesus, Jesus is referring to the people that say nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth, right? I mean, people are saying to Jesus, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. And really, that's the only time that the name of the town Nazareth is ever mentioned in Scripture. It's this no-name village. So here you have a lady with the most common name in the world coming from a no-name village. And we know that she's very poor because of the, the offerings that she gives with Joseph at the temple at Jesus' dedication. She offers pigeons, and that was provided for in the law for people who could not afford a greater sacrifice. So here you have an angel saying to Mary, oh, you are greatly favored. And she's thinking, I have the most common name. I'm from a no-name village. I'm poorer than most people. Beyond that, I'm a woman. In the society of the day, that did not meant to be favored. Right? A society that highly favored men in so many ways. Moreover, chances were that she could not read or write. In the society of the day, it was highly unlikely that, that a woman was able to read or write. So there was no power in that. And then, I think this is maybe the most eye-opening reality. Scholars believe, and I think rightly so, that Mary was likely 12 or 13 years old when this happened. Now, can you imagine? My son Jackson is 11, to give you a perspective on this. Can you imagine one year from now an angel appearing to Jackson and basically implying to him that he's going to have some part in the fulfillment of the prophecy to Daniel. Can you imagine this? Right? Can you even begin to, to, to imagine it? The scholars say she's 12 to 13 because that was the age around which women were given in marriage, pledged to marriage, most, most often to, to secure to the groom that she was a virgin. And of course, this comes into play in a huge way in this story. So the angel says to her, you are a most favored person. And she's thinking to herself, no, 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 no. I'm not favored in any way. I can look around me and see rulers and elitists. I can go to Jerusalem and see, see the people who are high in the totem pole. I can look to Rome and see the people who are really ruling this universe. And I'm not a favored person. And then Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. And this just seems like a passing phrase here, right? Oh, this isn't a nice thing to, for him to say. The Lord is with you. But this phrase 
was most often, if not always, used to speak directly to people that God was about to call into fulfilling His covenant promise with His people. We give you a list of people who this was said of. It was said of Isaac. It was said of Jacob. It was said of Joseph. It was said of Moses. It was said of Gideon. It was said of Samuel. It was said of David. It was said of Jeremiah. These are the kind of people, and Mary, though she couldn't read or write, would have been very fluent in the stories of the Old Testament because this was, a, this was an oral, orally communicating people. They would have told these stories time and time again. Do you remember when God said to Isaac that the Lord is with you? Do you remember when God said to Samuel, the Lord is with you, and look what happened? And now here comes this man saying, the Lord is with you, Mary. And she must have been thinking to herself, how on earth can I be included in the litany of the heroes of my people? Perhaps it's not so astonishing that Mary was really confused by the greeting of this angel Gabriel to her. What on earth is he about to say? Now, have you ever had this experience when someone leads into you with an introduction and you know that the the other shoe is going to drop or the hammer is going to fall or whatever, and you kind of just want to say to him, just get to it, or maybe i I got to go. I I don't want to hear the rest of this, you know. You've been in those circumstances. This is what Mary's feeling. What is this building up to? What is he going to ask me? What is he going to require of me? How is this happening? How can this be happening to me? This is what's going on in her human reality. And then listen to the divine response of Gabriel from God to Mary. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. He says, don't be afraid. Easy for him to say. But then he says this really reaffirming statement that you have found favor not in the eyes of man as the first phrase seemed to imply, but in the eyes of God. And this phrase, favor in the eyes of God, was spoken of of people who were going to, to preserve the people of God. This was a phrase that God spoke of to people like Noah and to Abraham and to Gideon. People who were going to radically, miraculously preserve the people of God. In other words, what Gabriel is affirming to Mary is that God has chosen you. So don't be afraid. It is not on your human standing. This is the choice of God for you. And how like God to do this, isn't it? God is always choosing ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Always. Always. It's God's way to work through His creation to redeem His creation. This is how He does it. And oh, by the way, it is also God's way to conscript people, right? The classic reality to me in this story is that Mary got zero say in this, right? He didn't recruit her. He didn't ask her. He didn't ask her permission. Uh, He didn't ask if she was interested. He didn't give her a scale of 1 to 10. Would you consider this, right? He says, you're pregnant. Congratulations. (laughs) This is is your lot in life. And I think, oh my gosh, but this is, again, this is just God's way. 
Because when God is the initiator, we can be certain of a good conclusion. Right? He didn't necessarily say, oh, I'm going to take what you did here and I'm going to finish it well, although God graciously does that. He's the initiator of the good thing here that the conscription of God, the election of God, leads always to divine victory. Always leads to divine victory. Look at the annals of the Old Testament stories. Just look at them. God chooses a random farmer named Noah and says, hey, build a giant ark. Again, he didn't ask if he was interested. He didn't ask if he was up for it. He didn't ask if he had the construction chops to pull this thing off. He says, you're my guy, go do it. Divine victory. God calls on Abraham, a man of decent wealth, but from a foreign country, and says, hey, you're going to be my guy. Didn't ask him if he was interested. Didn't ask him if he liked the job. Didn't ask him if he felt comfortable moving his entire family. He said, you're my man. God chose Moses, and as hard as Moses tried to get out of it, he said, no, you're my guy. You're going to do this. Divine conscription, as hard as it is to handle, and we'll talk about this in a second, always ends in divine victory. Always ends in divine victory. Mary's story goes from selection to what we'll call struggle here. That's a simple word to talk about a big concept. Listen Listen to what Gabriel continues to tell her. Uh, Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Um, Again, this would have been huge to her, right? We think of Jesus as this interesting name that God chose for Mary that no one else has, but it's really the Hebrew name Joshua. It's Yeshua. So again, Mary's processing all these things. Wait a minute, Joshua was the one who, who took the people into the new promised land, right? So you're going to call him the new Joshua, and he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Can you imagine a 12 or 13 year old woman hearing this? Can you imagine it? And this is Mary's response How can this be? After all, I'm a virgin. How can this be? After all, I'm a virgin. I think there are two points of struggle here for Mary. I think she, I think she's after two points of, of issue, contention for her. The first is the obvious physical reality that she's a virgin. How can this be possible? How can I be pregnant? It would take a miracle for this to even happen. It's not possible. She knows her sexual history. She knows her purity. She knows that this is not possible. So it would take a miraculous reality. But maybe the second thing is the thing she's pushing even harder at in this reality. And that's is, after all, I'm a virgin. In other words, this could ruin my life. What you're asking me to do here could ruin my life. Not just in the simple fact of giving me a bad reputation. I could be killed for this. Because in that day, Joseph could have rightly had her put away, you know? for what appeared to everyone on the outside as sexual promiscuity. 
So I think there's real struggle going on in Mary's heart here saying, wait a minute, physically, how can this even be possible? Well, you're asking what you're saying about me. How can it even be true? That's the one side of it. And the other side of it, if it is true, what you're telling me is that my life is radically different now and I had no say in it and it's going to be really hard and you've messed everything up for me. The life that I've planned with Joseph, the life that my family has enabled me to have, you're messing it all up. You've screwed it all up for me. Can I tell you something, church? I don't think it's just human to struggle with God's call or the reality of God. I think it's right to struggle. And I think a lack of struggle in our life in some capacity should be red flags in your spiritual walk with God. I think if the story here simply had Mary saying, all right, I'm in, that that might speak to her not being the right choice, you know? That might speak to her simply having what we would call an external false holiness that doesn't count the cost of what it means to follow God and all that it's going to cost her. I think sometimes many of us are unwilling to struggle with the calls that God puts on our life, whether it's a vocational call or just the call of discipleship, of living a countercultural way in a world that is pushing hard against you. Right? We don't struggle with it, and so we live these, 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 these segmented lives, this one life that tries to follow God where everyone else is looking, and this other life that just goes with the ways of this world. Right? We have this, this external faux-holiness that we put on when we feel like we need to, either in front of God or in front of others. And honestly, I think it's because we haven't allowed ourselves to struggle hard. To ask hard questions that maybe Mary was pondering in the moment. Like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Have you asked that question of yourself? Is it worth it for me to follow Jesus? Now, I could give you the answer but you must have the answer. You don't need my answer for you. If you're just applying other people's answers to yourself, then you're going to have this shallow connection to God. I think it's not just human to struggle. I think it's right. In fact, there's this phrase that, that um, I, hear, I hear people use from time to time. I think it's interesting. They say, easy come, easy go. Have you heard this before? Easy come, easy go. In other words, people who come easily will go easily. And I see a whole lot of that in the church today. People who came easily without counting the cost, and then when the cost started to add up on the accounting sheet of their life, they're out the door. It's because they didn't give themselves permission to struggle and to receive. to struggle and to receive. Listen, most every biblical hero that we have, when God gives them a call, at some point in time, they struggle hard with it, right? Remember Elijah under the tree, depressed. Remember that? Remember Joseph trying to figure things out with his brothers? Or better yet, remember Jesus in the garden. Some would say pleading with the Father to not make him do what he's called him to do. 
I think it was the struggle that allowed him to bear the torture the next day. Church, you have permission to struggle, but you must struggle well. God does not condemn strugglers, ever. Remember Moses, when God calls Moses, Moses is saying all kinds of things like, whoa, whoa, what about, no, you don't want me. And God, God's continuously reaffirming him. Continuously. Never once in the beginning of the story does God say to him, you know what, you're right. You stink. I'm done with you. I'm going go to go another direction. It's not until Moses continues to pester God over the same things time and time again that God finally gets angry with him and says, take your brother with you. You know? God has a big heart for you. God is kind towards you. God loves you enough to let you wrestle with the truth of the gospel and its call on your life. He does not want you to flippantly say yes, only to leave a short bit later. Those who struggle well stay long. Because here's what I believe. If you struggle with the reality of God, well. If you struggle with the call of God on your life, well. The affirmation of the Spirit of God to you will conquer the struggle and will only affirm the bonds of God's call on you in such a way that you can't leave. Have you ever had that feeling at some point in your life? Like, you know what? At this point in my life, with all that's gone wrong, I'd just like to step out of this whole thing. And then in your heart, you're thinking, I could never do that. You ever had that feeling? Why? This is why, you know? You've struggled well and you've been affirmed even better. This, I think, is what's happening to Mary. Listen to the divine response to Mary's struggle here. This is fascinating to me. Uh, How will this be, Mary asked in verse 34, I'm a virgin. The angel answered to you, the Holy Spirit will come on you. That's how. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Two things Gabriel says from God in response to Mary's struggle. The first is the Holy Spirit's power. That's how. The Holy Spirit's power. See, Mary is honest about her human incapacity, and this is huge. She's more honest about her human incapacity than most of us will ever be. She's willing to say, you know what? This job you're calling me to do, I can't do it. Many of us will be tempted to say, you know what? I've got some talents here. I've got some ability in this field. I could do this a little bit. I could, I could perform in this way. But Mary's coming at it the right way. I got nothing here, God. You're dealing with a 12-year-old virgin. Do you know this? I'm from Nazareth. I've got the most common name in the whole world. You're choosing me? And God says, not about you. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's power will come on you, and that's all you need. That beautiful moment when human incapacity is met by divine enablement, when our willingness to admit our human incapacity and at the same moment believe in God's divine enablement that God does unbelievable things. This is a story of the Gospel. Time and time again. 
He doesn't just say Holy Spirit power. I love the next thing that he does. And for the longest time, this has perplexed me, but it wasn't until I was reading it uh, this week in preparation for this that it began to make sense to me. He tells her, listen, Elizabeth is going to have a baby. And I think, well, that's great news. You know, and later, Mary, it says right after this, Mary runs to Elizabeth and they hang out for like months together. And that always perplexed me. Like, how is that an interesting response to this news that's happening? Oh, you're going to go rejoice with Elizabeth over this baby. What about Joseph? Are you thinking about talking to him about this? You know, are you, how are you going to deal with your parents in this whole mess? You know, how, what about the village people? She's going to go hang out with Elizabeth for a while. And it didn't dawn on me in preparing for this, this makes total sense to me at least. I think what, God, what Gabriel is saying to, to Mary by bringing up Elizabeth is, hey, you're not my first trick, you know? You're not the first person that I've done something miraculous with, Mary. You know? First of all, he's put her in the long litany of people he's done miraculous things with, right? He brought a flood and saved the world through Noah. He built a whole people as numerous as the stars from a man and wife who had no kids and were, were old, really old. You know? He took Moses, who wanted no parts of it, was totally feeble and, and terrified, and delivered people from the greatest regime of the day. He took Gideon, who was terrified and no warrior, and conquered an oppressing army. He took David, who was the runt of the litter, and made him king, who unified the people for the first time. And Mary's thinking, as we often are, well, that's great. I like the stories that I've heard from my my forefathers. It's good good sometimes to read the Scriptures and to be reminded of these stories of God's power, isn't it? But it seems far off, doesn't it? It's like, well, yeah, God can, can do it. That's what we get from that. God can do it. But would he do it for me? But this is where Gabriel says, oh, by the way, Elizabeth's pregnant. Did you know that? Well, of course Mary didn't know it. And Mary's flabbergasted by this reality because Elizabeth can't have kids. And she's a relative in a small town. They know that she can't have kids. And if she's really pregnant then this is huge, not just for Elizabeth, but for Mary's faith. Do you see this? And so what is the first thing that Mary does when she gets done with this whole interaction with the angel? She wants to go see if Elizabeth is really pregnant. (laughs) And, And I can imagine when she gets there and sees the swollen belly of Elizabeth when it affirms every ounce of surrender that she has to God's will in her life. And the two women embrace, and together their stories of faith embolden each other's faith in community. See, this is what God does. He doesn't just say, I I can do it. Look at all the stories from the Bible. Then he shows up in your family and does something amazing and how it bolsters your faith. He shows up in your church family and does something astounding. And that's not just for that person, it's for all of us. He shows up in your community group and answers prayers, and it solidifies your faith in a God who loves you. This is why she runs to Elizabeth, to be affirmed in community. You see this, how radically important community is to the stability of our faith. She didn't just go up there 
find out she was pregnant and say, all right, and come home. She hung with her for a while. And I can only imagine what they were telling to each other. Can you imagine what God's going to do? Somehow he's going to rescue the whole of his people through what he's doing through us. How is this possible? I can't believe it. But you're pregnant, and you're pregnant. It must be true, right? This is what happens when we gather together in community. We are human and we are frail and it's hard for us to trust in God. And then we see Him intervening in the lives of others and it emboldens our faith and it emboldens the other person's faith. And we plug in and plug in more and suddenly we're willing to fully give ourselves to the way of God. Imagine if Mary didn't go up to see Elizabeth. How different the next parts of the story might have been. Imagine. Imagine if God dumped this on you, and then said, oh, by the way, you can't talk to anyone about it. <laughs> Good luck. You know? If you're like me, you'd be like terrified and anxious, trying to figure out how to do this in your own power. But then you go hang with your friends, with your family, with your church, with your community group, and you're reminded that this is who God is. It takes regular people just like us and he does extraordinary things, and it doesn't hinge on our capacity to do it. We see it, and we're affirmed in it time and time again. He chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Well, this is how the story of Mary and Gabriel ends here. Verse 38. Mary says, Then I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left. Mary's selection ends in her, goes to her struggle and it ends in her surrender. Does it not? She says, she goes from saying, how can this be to let it be done to me according to your word? This does not happen by accident, Right? doesn't happen. You're not like fretting over this big thing and immediately you're like, all right, let's go for it. Let's do it. This is a great idea. This is because she struggled well and it ends in surrender for Mary. Surrender is what happens when you are honest about your human inability and you have a true belief in God's divine enablement then and only then does surrender happen. Listen, I have no idea what God is calling you to do. I mean, I know generically what He's calling you to do. We're all called to make disciples. We've all got unique calls in our life and how we're supposed to do it. Some of you are called to be great moms and great dads, and some of you are called to, to, to be the incarnation of Jesus in your workplace, and some of you are called to, to aspects of vocational ministry, and, and all of us are called to be good neighbors and so forth and so on. And the truth is, you have nothing that you need to accomplish this. But you do have the Holy Spirit. And this, the moment when your human inability, your willingness to admit your human inability, coincides with a deep and firm belief in God's divine enablement, is not only when you'll see surrender, but when you will see the Holy Spirit do some unbelievable things. Some things that I would argue, in terms of miraculous, rival the incarnation. Right? I'm not suggesting, 
some kind of miraculous thing is going to happen to you that science can't figure out. But is it not miraculous when another person trusts the gospel? You didn't do that. Your creative arguments, your loving hospitality, you didn't do that. The Holy Spirit did it through you. Is it not miraculous when people taste and see the gospel who have been afflicted by natural disasters? We didn't do that just because we can, can create s- simple programs. We did it because we surrendered to what God calls us to do. In Luke chapter 9, just a few chapters later, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And this is what he famously says. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever, wants, what, whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? See, Mary had come to the conclusion and surrender not just that God had the power to miraculously make her pregnant, but she had also surrendered to the fact that her life was radically different now. That any plans that she might have made could be done with. That it's very possible that the marriage that she was pledged to have could be over. And to be a single woman with a child at that day was not good news. It's to be without income and support. Mary was willing in this moment of her saying, let it be to me according to your word, I am your servant, to say, I embrace the life that you have chosen for me over against the life that I have planned for myself. And that is radical. And it only comes because she counted the cost and said, you know what? The gospel weighs more than any earthly life that I could have planned for myself. Friends, maybe when you look at your life, you think of yourself as just a common person, as a regular person, as a million other people like me. And maybe we come from this, the Lehigh Valley here. It's, you know, it's a nice place to live, but it's you know, a metropolitan, great big place. Maybe we don't come from great families with great last names that provide for us a life based on our name or our heritage. Maybe we feel like we're really young. Maybe not just in age, but in like understanding any of this stuff. We feel like, like we couldn't even figure it out if we read it. You know? Can I tell you that you are right where God wants you to be? To use you? Like, He'd rather use that than some superstar. Because God is jealous for His glory. So maybe being a disciple is less about bolstering yourself up in your Bible street cred and more about saying, I got nothing. And saying, God, I believe that you can do something. 
and living and leaning into it hard. Struggle with it hard. Is it worth it? I promise you that it is, but you must come to that answer for yourself. And what you will find when you struggle and answer yes is that you, yes you, as common as you may feel you are, from as much of a no-name town as you may feel like you come, from as young or immature in your faith as you feel like you may be, as poor as you may feel like you are, you will become the very bearer of the image of God to the world around you, just as the Virgin Mary was to the world around her. So count the cost. Daily, Jesus says. It's not a once and done counting. <laughs> Tomorrow you've got to count the cost. Is it worth it today? Is the gospel worth it today for me to say I'm going to live my life differently than the world tells me to live it? I'm not going to live my life for earthly success. I'm going to live it for kingdom impact. Is it worth it? And then Tuesday, you're going to have to do the same thing again. And listen, we're going to fail at this miserably, but that's the beauty of our God, you know? I bet when Mary was seven months pregnant, she had some fears still, you know? She's a human. God's okay with that. He's not looking for perfection in, in, in following you. If he was, then you, he would have asked, asked you to save yourself. He's just looking for you regularly to come back and say, you know what, I got nothing, but I believe that you've got something. Make your kingdom expand through me. Church, may you lean into the unique calling that God has given you, not with your human talents, powers, abilities, or dreams, but with the power that only comes from the Spirit of God. Can I pray with you?